HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, and so happy to be back uh, for a new fall season on Heritage Radio Network. And today is a really interesting topic for me. I hope it will be for you, a very special topic. You know, after my mother died, there was really only one thing that I wanted, and it was her cookbook. She really didn't have a lot of cookbooks, but one in particular that I remembered was an old one from way back when, around World War II, the beginning of World War II. And it wasn't the cookbook so much because I could find that on some shelves, but it was all the scraps of paper stuck inside the cookbook, all the recipes that she had written down in her own hand and and made notes on and ripped out of magazines and then wrote notes on those recipes. That, to me, was so much more interesting. It told me so much about her and the way she cooked and what the way she taught me to cook and about food, if they were before I was born, food in that time and, and the recipes that were popular in that time. And I mention that because it it still is notations in cookbooks is still a very important part of of culture and and the past. There were in fact entire cookbooks written by hand, manuscript cookbooks, and those go back well those go back uh, to pre-medieval times even. But the ones that we have access to. Um, a little later than that. And they tell us so much about history. And now they were very, they're very difficult to get your hands on. A lot of people don't even know that they exist or know where they exist. These are handwritten cookbooks, but we'll learn more about that because my guest today, Stephen Schmidt, is a principal researcher and writer for a brand new website called 
the manuscript cookbooks survey.com. And it truly is a wonderful resource where one can search and learn about these old cookbooks online. And it's a wonderful resource, resource for culinary historians who are researching things, but also just for anyone who wants to learn more about manuscript cookbooks. Stephen is a cooking teacher and a personal chef in New York City and is also the author of Master Recipes, a tome, a 940-page master book on recipes. But he is a, a, a teacher par excellence as well and a researcher and a culinary historian, um, and he has contributed to two editions of The Joy of Cooking and The Oxford Companion to American Food and Drink and on and on and is working on um, another book, which I'm sure is going to be an equally large tome on desserts. (laughs) Uh, Stephen, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Very nice to be here. All right. Let's start from the beginning and explain to our listeners, those who might not be familiar with manuscript cookbooks, exactly what is a manuscript cookbook? Uh, a manuscript cookbook is a cookbook that exists uh, in manuscript, meaning that it is handwritten. Uh, in the English and American tradition, these cookbooks go back to the 14th century, conceivably even the 13th century. But the ones that were written by home cooks start in the 16th century. Now, when you say the ones written by home cooks, because what... These other books that existed, and I'm sure they, you know, in, in other languages as well, but, but we're focusing on English language. They, they do exist in other languages. However, our language is the language, the, the one that has the, by far the richest number. Um, a- actually, many cultures have very few of these. Interesting. Yeah, it's yeah. not. It, it is pan-European, uh, and and possibly it's also Asian. Although I don't know anything about Asian manuscript cookbooks, but the English tradition is the richest one. And uh, when you say largely written, um, the ones that, later in the period, because the ones that existed earlier, why why would you not be? Why would we not necessarily be interested in those for this uh, website? Well, we we are the manuscript cookbook surveys surveys. All uh, manuscript cookbooks written in English from the very first ones through uh, 1865 uh, that are in U.S. repositories, in libraries, historical sites, uh, and museums, uh, all public institutions. The, they break down into two types. In, before 1500, the manuscript cookbooks that survived, there are about 40 of them in English, were written by professional chefs. Uh, they are not. Uh, they were probably dictated. The chefs m- may not have been literate, uh, but and they were not primarily used as cookbooks. They were records of some kind. We're not really quite sure. Many of them exist on scrolls. They're not really usable. You wouldn't bring them into the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Uh, after uh, the, the mid 16th century, that's the the Tudor era, really starting with the reign of, of Queen Elizabeth the first. That is when home cooks began to compile these books, and they they start uh, really in earnest in the 17th century. And th- this reflects a change in culture. This reflects a time when uh, women, and we're talking here about very privileged women through the 18th century and still fairly privileged into the 19th century because people who were not privileged didn't 
cook with recipes. They and many of them weren't even literate, uh, and they had no no money to buy very interesting food as well. well <laughs> yes, the idea of cooking, as we think of cooking, it. it uh, for the middle classes, it's really a mid-19th century development. Before then, cooking was really something that uh, cooking, sophisticated cooking, was something that only fairly privileged people did. Um, so uh, the, the, the books, the, the, there was a time at which women at home began to think of themselves as personally supervising the kitchen giving directions to their cooks about what they wanted so that they could order what was called the bill of fare. That's, that, is a, that is an early modern development, a 16th century, 17th century development. Before that, we surmise that, at least in the English tradition, most women just left the whole business to their professional staff right. and did not mess with recipes, didn't collect them, didn't write them down, and so on. And and as you say, the earlier ones written by the professional chefs, who, as you say, probably dictated them to some scribe. Right, to a scribe. Largely, because I have uh, seen bits and pieces of some in there, lists of of almost like a grocery list, lists of, of types of meat, how many, you know, how many uh, yes. pounds of meat, the, the lists of, of kitchen equipment and yeah, not, the, not the only the only one the only recipes at that time that were generally given in formulas were those that used uh, that used sugar in some way or other uh, for for a variety of reasons. One of them being that many of those recipes also had some kind of medical medicinal function, mm, mm-hmm. uh, and so they were very precise. But but meat and vegetables and things of that kind, they were. It was just the ingredients that were given, not the amounts. Mm-hmm. Well, how uh, now? Some of some of these manuscripts are well known by many people who research uh, many culinary historians. They're popular ones. But there are some that are, are rather obscure that you found that are included in this survey as well. Um, how did you and, and your team, how many people worked on this? And I know it was a long time coming because yeah. I've been talking to you about this for a long time. Yeah. How, um, how did you go about researching these and, and finding out where they were and getting your hands on them? Well, it's people don't realize this. But most libraries, or at least many libraries, possess these manuscripts. They are, they are things that libraries collect and museums and historical sites. They're considered important materials. So uh, they, it's true that they're often not cataloged or they're not fully cataloged, so that they do have to be ferreted out. But institutions are delighted to have somebody come and ask them what their materials are and and to help them find them sometimes we actually help them find them hmm. uh and and to put them up online there was a an historical site in Connecticut that had 10 of these manuscripts and the and the or actually they I think they had 13 and the woman who was in charge of this site said that in her 10 years on the job not one person had so much as inquired about these manuscripts much less ever looked at them so the institutions are very happy generally speaking to have somebody do something with these manuscripts and highlight their collections right and and so you became aware i mean how how did you become aware that they were even located there i mean just a lot of digging and and searching and 
Uh, the, uh, the the website itself is supported by the Pine Tree Foundation, and the Pine Tree it's actually supported by a a branch of the Pine Tree Foundation called the Pine Needles Foundation. And the head of the Pine Tree Foundation and the co-creator of the website with me, Sylvia Tannenbaum, is a librarian. So she was already aware that these manuscripts existed. And uh, she and I began to talk about the, the manuscripts for various reasons, and she came up with this idea that since these manuscripts were often not cataloged or not completely cataloged and people didn't know where they were, and yet people really wanted to know about them, that somebody should survey them and and bring all of the material that is in U.S. public repositories together in one place so that people could, could see it. I, I would also mention that a lot of these manuscripts are, are, are now available online so that you can go to the website, uh, our website, and if the manuscript is available online, there is a little prompt in the database that says viewable online, and then there is a link that will lead you to the manuscript. So you can actually read it. Uh, if it's not available online, we we produce a kind of summary or record of it so that you can have a sense of what it is and where it is. Well, and that's very important because there are certain challenges in, in reading these old documents. Um, they're not, the handwriting is is sometimes not always yeah. <laughs> the easiest to read, and just you know getting used to reading old. Um, anyone who's used to reading any old texts knows the formation of letters is a little different. You get used to it after a while, but yeah. is having a summary of some of those. And then again, you know, people who aren't familiar with it should not expect recipes per se as we know them. Talk about that. Talk about what is in these yeah. manuscripts and, and well, or the it, receipts, as we would call. Yeah, them. Re- receipts was the uh, the usual English and American word through the end of the nineteenth century. It is etymologically a cousin to to recipe, although recipe was also used. Uh, and uh, you can, one of the most fascinating things about these manuscripts is that you can watch the development of the modern recipe in them. In the earliest manuscripts, the 16th and 17th century manuscripts, very often quantities are not given. They are just give, just the ingredients are given. Uh, for for what we would consider the savory dishes, although most of the sweets, the cakes, the creams, the custards, the, the little cakes, or what we would call cookies, those things, generally speaking, do have complete uh, ingredients given uh, from the beginning. Uh, but during the 18th century, you begin to see the inclusion of quantities for in all recipes. And so the recipes begin to look a little bit more modern. More structured. <laughs> uh, a little bit more easy to reproduce. Right. That, uh, that is the important thing for culinary historians. The guesswork. It's very hard to figure out what to do with a recipe that just says put the following things in it without telling you how much of anything goes in it. And then by the 19th century, you begin to see the format change where you have a list of ingredients and then instructions, whereas the earlier recipes are just paragraphs with the ingredients and instructions all mixed together in a paragraph form. Well, it's interesting there um, because today's recipes have even changed from, let's say, uh, 
50 years ago, 40 years ago, dramatically. And I, I would like to go back to some of those times as well, which is what I find so wonderful about a lot of these old manuscripts is that even though there are not precise ingredients, um, amounts of the, and sometimes not even ingredients, I mean, they're sort of suggestions and suggestions of what to do and, and, and how it should be cooked or baked. But there are often more descriptions Let's say cook it until a nice brown crust forms around. Uh, yes. You know, you don't get that today. You know, let's say bake for thirty-five minutes. Well, not everyone's oven is the same. So, yeah, yeah. those are interesting little some interesting descriptions that were given. What about cooking? Do we learn from this methods of cooking? Now, you mentioned that that, that some of the manuscripts, more of them written by women, um, and certainly towards the the. 19th, mid-19th, late-19th century, um, what do we see in terms of cooking methods? Well, uh, the Manuscript Cookbook Survey, uh, we, we stop at, at 1865. Mm-hmm. The reason that we stop there is that that, that is pretty much the term, terminal date of hearth cooking. Uh, People in this country already were beginning to switch to coal and wood-fired stoves by the 1830s, 40s. Uh, But there were still some people cooking at the fireplace and using a brick oven uh, until through the Civil War. Uh, So you get a particular – there are a whole host of of cooking – techniques and methods and there's a whole host of attitudes toward cooking that are all connected with that that technology with cooking at the hearth uh so that this is this is a a, it to a certain extent a distinct epic in cooking from the beginning all the way to 1865 and what happens afterwards is another epic in cooking and the other thing that, that is very important to realize about American cooking is that it was extremely English throughout the time that people cooked at the fireplace. And it's not exactly because people started cooking at a stove that it became more American, but it, to some extent that's true. It just It's sort of coincidental uh, and, tie, and tied into a, a, a number of different factors that, uh, that, that cooking just changed in a pervasive way in this country uh, after the Civil War. People speak of the revolution in cooking today. It's nothing compared to what happened around the time of the Civil War. Mm. Uh, there was a much greater revolution in cooking. There's a much bigger change between, say, the cooking of, of Eliza Leslie, who was mm-hmm. the great cookbook author of the second third of the 19th century, and Fanny Farmer, who followed her uh, about uh, how many years? About 40 years after Leslie's death. The, the, the two authors seem like they are from different countries, uh, it's a much greater difference than you see, say, between a cookbook published today and one published in 1950. Um, what are a couple things in particular you could mention about that? For well, for one thing, the dishes are are almost completely different. I mean, there's no, I mean, not totally. There there are certain things like pumpkin pie and apple pie, and you could say beef stew that you would recognize from both books, but otherwise. Uh, 
they're not even the same dishes. They mm. don't appear to be the same cuisine and, any longer. Uh, and also the flavors are very different between uh, the two times. The, the one that, that I, as somebody who has, am particularly interested in desserts and sweets, would remark on is that Americans flavored virtually all sweet dishes with rose water. Before the before, before 1850, mm-hmm. uh, after uh, the Civil War, rose water almost disappears from this country, and people use, you know, vanilla or lemon or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, another huge difference is that uh, before the Civil War, people were very wary of baking powder or baking soda in in uh, at least in good cakes, as European chefs are today, as pastry chefs are today. After the Civil War, every Everything that had anything to do with cake or cookies or whatever was reliant on baking powder. And it gave it a completely different texture and look and taste, and uh, taste as well, from, right? from, from what had preceded it. Right. And that's just in the sweet department and the meat and vegetables also very big changes. We're going to talk more about the tastes and some of the terminologies when we come back after a short break. been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You still paying attention? Are you there? Hello, 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 hello. I'm talking to you. Hi. Hey, this is Jack Inslee. I'm the executive producer here at Heritage Radio Network. I've been here at the station since 2009, and I cannot believe just how much this network has grown over that time. We've been able to grow because of donations from people like you. So if you're enjoying this, if you laughed, if you learned something, contribute anything. A dollar, two dollars, ten dollars, a hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, anything counts. And trust me, we'll appreciate seeing your name come through on the donations. So consider visiting heritageradionetwork.org, click on that little beating heart, the donate button, and show us you care. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with Stephen Schmidt about the manuscript surveys, manuscriptcookbooksurvey.com website, a new website where one can uh, search old manuscripts and uh, learn a little bit about some of the the life and times and recipes of that during this period when the manuscripts were were um, used and written. And Stephen, that's what I wanted to talk. To. We we ended with flavors and ingredients and and a big switch in that period. Um, 
you know, a lot of people think that it was that some of the early those early recipes were perhaps crude, lacking in uh, spices, lacking in vegetables, even. Which, I mean, it shows in in many of these books that there certainly that was not the case. Well, I think people people make a lot of misassumptions about the cooking of the past. The 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 truth about it is that the uh, printed recipes reveal a much more sophisticated cooking than is done today in homes because the co- cooking was done by very well-off people. And I, I think I'll just mention one other thing that people don't generally grasp, which is in homes where people cooked by recipes, there was always a cook. All people had cooks. Who, who wrote these manuscripts. I, I, I Maybe 10% did not. I shouldn't make such a big generalization. But the people who cooked by recipes had cooks. And one of the reasons for this, beyond the fact that people were well off who cooked by recipes, is, is simply that there's no other way to do sophisticated cooking in a kitchen where the technology is so complicated without professional help, without right. paid help. You have to have a cook. Yeah. yeah, I think it's interesting um, for a lot of people who aren't familiar. Perhaps they've seen shows like uh, Downton Abbey, for instance, yes. where a lot of time is spent in the kitchen, and you can see just the amount of of manual labor that goes into. And that's much later. Yeah, and they that's have, exactly. They were not cooking over the fire right. there. Yeah, that's right. They were yeah. using stoves. Yeah. So imagine you needed somebody to stoke the fire and you know and stir the pots, hang those yes. hang those pots on those racks. I mean, that's it was it was heavy work, heavy, <laughs> heavy work. lifting. Yeah, and it's and time consuming. And, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you. You know, unfortunately, things come up that are claimed to be authentic, handwritten manuscripts and lo and behold sometimes we find out that they are uh, um, are fakes <laughs> did you have m- much problem with this that existed people said oh yes this is an early manuscript I mean or, or did you know the provenance by and large of everything I cannot think of any I, I don't think that there's a lot of motivation to fake these manuscripts because they're not you know big they don't have a lot of monetary value, right. so <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Or different historical societies. And I think yes, it would be an early one. Too di- I think it will also be too difficult. You would see it right away. Right. For one thing, uh, there are styles of handwriting, and and once you've read enough of these manuscripts, you immediately recognize that what's a an 18th century hand and a 17th century hand. People just wrote differently, even though people's handwriting is different as individuals. They still conform to a broad pattern within periods, and you can tell when Which, when it came from. Yeah, it, yeah, you, you know. can tell. What's interesting is, um, as you say, the summaries of of these books. You also learn a little bit about the people who who wrote them. Um, sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes right. you can tell something. But also what is very nice, and I hope that our listeners will will access this website and, and use it, um, if just to learn something, just to enjoy themselves, and then obviously people who want to do some research. But you, in particular, <laughs> do, yes. you um, have have written several nice posts. You keep a blog on the website. Right. And yes. the posts are so educational. They're so informative. Everything from, oh, I love the one on ambergris being yes. used as an yes. ingredient and yes. flavor. And, um, but there is where we learn about, about 
the times, a little bit more about the culture and about the people who were writing these these manuscripts. And I, I applaud you for for keeping that going because that's those are are so illuminating. Um, it makes, Thank you. Thank it you. makes the, the manuscripts yeah. really come alive. Yes, the Ambergris Post was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. wow, yes. yeah. Um, and tell me, if somebody wants to, um, and I'm looking at the uh, the database right now, when they want to search something on the database, um, can can they just input a particular? Dish or ingredient, or tell us a little bit about the the functioning of this. Yeah, of this database. they 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 can't they can't input a dish or an in, <clears throat> or an ingredient. What they can do is they can either search the the, the database by uh, the institution, uh, so that if they happen to live near a certain university or a museum, they can see whether or not we have surveyed their holdings. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing they can do is they can search it by the time and the place so that if they're interested in the 18th century, they can do the 18th century. If they're interested in 18th century English, they can search it that way too. They can also search it by the t- the title of the manuscript so that if they're looking for a specific manuscript, they can see whether or not we have that in our database and right. whether we have a record and a link to where that manuscript is. And uh, also, they can see whether that manuscript has been discussed elsewhere in the, in like in a blog or in in the history section or something like that. They can find all references to that manuscript within the whole site. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And you also have a, a section with adapted recipes, yeah. which I, I I love as well. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Well, those are recipes that have been discussed in the blogs. So that, uh, for example, I did a a blog on uh, historic custards, all of the many custards that used to be made in this country besides just the familiar one that we know today. And uh, several of the recipes I did adapt. And and they're very unlikely recipes. People don't realize that uh, you you can make a delightful custard with just uh, egg whites and lemon juice and sugar uh, that is transparent and it's very light and, and delightful. So, yeah, some of the recipes are also adapted. I did not do any for the ambergris post because I didn't have any ambergris on hand. But usually I have the ingredients. I can do it. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And, and um, I think that uh, in the you, you do a very good in-depth history um, on the website, which I think is uh, will help and, people. And we are going to have additional contributors to the history section. So I, I've That's done. Great. I have done an overview of the his, history of manuscript cookbooks. Actually, the entire his, history of cookbooks, both manuscript and printed, in, uh, in England and America th- through 1865. So that if you want to learn something about cookbook history, it's all there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are also going to have uh, people who uh, – other contributors to, to that who have other things to say about the history of uh, print and manuscript recipes. Oh, that's, that's terrific. Yeah. You know, we were talking about um, terminology uh, before, too, and, um, and you were talking about how things change dramatically uh, after 1865. And it's, as one who looks at a lot of old recipes, you know, everything at one point was called a pudding – uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> Pudding meant something different originally right. than it does today. Yeah. Puddings were were almost like, you know, were stews, cakes, uh, 
sweet things. They were custards. They were yeah. They were uh, historically they were more like what what we think of as bread pudding right. or yeah. And puddings were something that you ate with meat in the first course of the meal, either sometimes before the meat or with the meat. Uh, they were they began to transition to something that you ate afterwards in the 18th century. And there was a period of, of practically 100 years when they were both when with the meat or, or after or the meat. Dessert. We still have a few, like corn pudding. That's right. That is sort of sweet potato something pudding with, in, the, in the South. Yes, that's, uh, yeah, and even uh, elsewhere in the country mm-hmm. is still thought of as something that you eat with meat. Right. Yeah, right. yeah. Well, for people who are a little confused when they read some of the old recipes too, there's a wonderful glossary included. There is a glossary. Very helpful yeah. to people yeah. who are not familiar with, with a lot of this old terminology. Um, and there, something that just came across my radar the other day, someone was trying to, um, I guess, figure out the difference between uh, thickening agents and, you know, and, and the uses. And, of course, that changed dramatically, um, whether, and depending on where a person lived, too, about a gelatin or a, or a you know, a rennet type of, of thickening. And, um, these are all we're all assumed in some of these manuscripts that people knew what what they were using, right? What people would be using. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. What recipes? Uh, they often contain a lot of sort of buried knowledge that if you if you know what the recipe is referring to or talking about, you can reproduce it. But if you don't know what the recipe is talking about, you're kind of at a loss, and yeah. and of course the recipes, pe- people you you mentioned rennet. People were very fond of cheesecakes, for uh, and they were more like what we think of as Italian cheesecake, uh, a little bit uh, not so sweet, not not so sweet, and dense. having a different texture, mm-hmm. having a, a, a sort of a more nubby texture. Uh, but people generally made the cheese at home, and they made it with rennet, which uh, rennet is is a, is part of the stomach of calves. It contains an enzyme. It's used in most cheese making today too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, what they did is they they bought a little patch of the stomach and they soaked it in wine, and then they used the wine to curdle the milk. So, the recipes don't generally make any of that clear. They just say, <laughs> turn the milk, and then put it in a sieve, and you're thinking, well, what do I mean? What does that mean to turn the milk? I don't get it. Yeah. 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 Well, that's what, and that's why, I mean, we learn so much about the culture at the time because of these hidden hidden messages, hidden things that you have to dig a little deeper and then find out what do they mean. And, and that whole period starts to come alive a little bit. Yeah. A lot of these manuscripts, um, not a lot, but many of them were written for, not for, but let's say to pass down, to um, give to a, mm-hmm. perhaps a daughter mm-hmm. if she were getting married. Or um, there's even the case where recipes were passed amongst neighbors um, and uh, eventually written down. And I don't know whether they were always, someone would credit the person that they received the recipe from. Yeah, the, the, you know, uh, trying to figure out why a manuscript was written, for whom, what it, what the intent behind it was, is often very revealing. In many cases, you can't tell why somebody wrote it down. Wrote it down. Uh, 
manuscripts generally break into two types. There are the manuscripts that are uh, that were largely copied from another manuscript. In other words, it's your mother's cookbook, and when you got married, you took your mother's cookbook and you copied the, either all the recipes or the recipes that you particularly wanted. That you, and you liked. And that you liked, <laughs> and then wrote more as you had your own kitchen career and then handed this down to your daughter or niece or whatever. And then there are other manuscripts that are done a little bit more the way we usually think of of collecting recipes where the person just started with a blank notebook and then as he or she went through a kitchen career, collected recipes from various people and then just jotted them down in the book. And then, of course, there are all the manuscripts that straddle the fence. There are Mm -hmm. many that uh, a, a home cook started by copying some recipes that were in the family, you know, favorite mother recipes, and they're often in the very front of the book and you can kind of tell them because they're a little bit different in tone and maybe they're all written in the same hand you can tell that they were just put down at the same time and then there's a whole bunch of recipes that were collected by the person over the years so there's a lot of different ways and then sometimes as you say somebody sat down and said i am going to do this book for for my children or my grandchildren there's a a a heartbreaking example at the new york academy of medicine a a manuscript that in the middle of a recipe, the writer breaks off and, and, and addresses her dear motherless grand-grandchildren. And what you suddenly realize is that she is writing this book of recipes to pass down to her great-grandchildren because their mother because has died. And she doesn't think they'll get the recipes otherwise. Oh, yeah. 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 It's rare to see that. Yeah. But sometimes the books actually do reveal why they were written. <laughs> Yeah. Did you find in um, a lot of these older uh, manuscripts that they are organized how we would think of recipes in a cookbook to be organized? Uh, some, like some of them are organized. Some, sometimes people block appetizers, off. Appetizers, main course. Off. Well, they didn't eat the same way we do no. either. No, right? no, 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 yeah, no. Hmm. Some of them blocked off uh, the areas. Pretty, I, I would say this is not typical before the 18th century. Uh, but but uh, but some of them do. Some of them are organized. Of course, many of them are organized, and then people forget how they organize them, and the <laughs> <laughs> and they start writing the recipes in all sorts of different places. That is also very common. Yeah. And the other thing is that uh, many of these manuscripts are written by a number of different people. Mm-hmm. That somebody started them, and then they got handed down, or then the sister took them over, or you, it's very hard to tell what happened to them, but you can tell because there are two or three or four different hands in the manuscript. Yeah. Yeah. And so occasionally you'll even find a fascinating manuscript that was begun in the 17th century, and then the last entries are in the 19th century. So hmm. you don't know whether it you was don't know in who con- continuous it. use all that time or whether somebody just picked it up and said, oh, well, here's a recipe book. I'll start writing uh, my own recipes in it. Yeah. Well, just a humorous aside, I started talking about my mother and her recipes initially. And and my sister and I found a funny, uh, ended up being funny, but a spiral-bound book near her cookbooks. And she started jotting down recipes that she liked that she got from people. And then all of a sudden, as you just said, then something happened she picked up and later on the rest of the pages were filled with recipes that she said 
do not use. <laughs> Which we oh, that is very why? interesting. Yes, oh, and, although and we kind of laugh. We said, "Why did she bother?" I do. Un- I do understand that because sometimes I have forgotten to note in some recipe that I've said that it was bad or I've thrown a recipe out and then I come across it again and it appeals to me for the same reason that appealed to me the first time (laughs) and I don't remember until after I made it that I made it before and I didn't like it. Well, we got a big laugh out of that because she did. (laughs) I said, do not use, do not use. I I was thankful for that. That is is terrific. (laughs) Well, I want to thank you, first of all, for sharing all this wonderful information. It was a pleasure. And I know Stephen has so much more. He could say um, you really are a font of knowledge and, and I appreciate everything that you share with us as culinary historians and and your teaching and I want to remind people that the the website again is called manuscript cookbooks plural, plural. survey yep, very dot com and just a wonderful site a, a very very informative site, and uh, thank you and much. thank you so much. We will put a picture of that on on this show page Terrific. so people can see it, and we'll list the the website as well. And I thank you for listening to Stephen and I chat on about these old recipes, and hope that you will join me again on a taste of the past. And I would like to thank our terrific engineer Liz Smith, and. If you've enjoyed this show and all the others that you can hear on Heritage Radio Network, I hope that you'll consider becoming a donor or becoming a member. It's very simple. Just look at our homepage and the information will be there for you. I want to remind everyone that our brand new website is rolling out. So by the time you hear this, we will have a new website. Make it even easier for you to press that donate button and become a member. Okay, thanks for listening. I'm Linda Palaccio, A Taste of the Past. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.